Hey, it's Cameron here. Are you intrigued by how technology like artificial intelligence and cloud computing are affecting geopolitics? Do you care about how governments are using these tools? If so, then I'd recommend checking out Microsoft's Public Sector Future podcast. Head over to aka.ms slash public sector future to find all the episodes or just search for public sector future wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, and welcome to Ones and Twos FP's economics podcast. Every week, we take a couple of data points. We use them to try to explain the world. I'm Cameron Abadi, FP's deputy editor with you in Berlin, Germany. As always, Adam Twos, FP's economics columnist and Columbia University professor, is with us in New York. Hi, Adam. Hi, Cam. So, in the second half of the show, we'll be talking about Adam's next big essay for foreign policy, which is all about the 1970s and what the 1970s have to do with today's economic situation. You may have encountered some comparisons along those lines. Obviously, we have inflation today. The 1970s were the last time we had a big bout of inflation. Stick around to hear where exactly that analogy breaks down. But first, we wanted to do something more from the news And the data point here is 629,898. That is the total number of American women who had abortions in 2019. That was the last year that the Center for Disease Control, the CDC, was able to compile complete statistics. The data from the last couple of years was disrupted by the pandemic, but it seems safe to say the number will probably go down this year. That's because, according to a document that was uh, leaked several weeks ago, the U.S. Supreme Court may be about to overturn Roe v. Wade. Uh, That is the 1973 decision that guaranteed American women the right to an abortion. The 49th anniversary of the Supreme Court's Roe v. Wade decision. By a 7-2 vote, Supreme Court justices legalized abortion in the Roe v. Wade ruling. But could this be the last anniversary of that law? The final decision by the court could arrive anytime in the next several weeks. Um, and it's worth clarifying that we don't know for certain what the final ruling will be. We do know that the immediate effects of that decision would be unambiguous. I mean, states across the United States uh, are, are poised to ban abortion entirely the, the, the moment that they are legally able to do so. So we thought uh, we'd try to get ahead of this historical legal moment to clarify what the economic stakes are. So, Adam, what are the biggest measurable effects of abortion access on the economic lives of women? There was an amicus brief submitted to the Supreme Court in connection with this by a a large collection of economists, over 100 economists signed up to it. And and the point they're making is that it's beyond serious debate at this point. A very large amount of intellectual energy has been invested, unsurprisingly, in this issue. And the um, empirical analysis shows, I think, unmistakably that... um, that the expansion of abortion access has reduced teen motherhood in the United States by a dramatic amount, perhaps by as much as 34%, and teen marriage, uh, so shotgun weddings, by by 20%. 
And the logic here goes back to a famous paper um, authored by none other than Janet Yellen, um, now Treasury Secretary, and her husband, Nobel Prize winner George Akerlof, and their colleague, Michael Katz, which predicted precisely this, that if you introduce in their terms a new technology for controlling fertility, which on the one hand contraception and on the other hand abortion, then you would see these kind of effects. Um, what the data also shows, quite unmistakably and undeniably, is that the impact of this uh, on young black women is, is uh, overwhelmingly more significant than it is for white women. So this is a, an issue of social justice with huge racial uh, effects because abortion basically is a last resort birth control method, especially for poor Americans. Um, and it's a majority minority method that's employed overwhelmingly by, by women of color. One of the crucial things to recognize about abortion um, and the role that it plays is that it's not a birth control method for first-time mums, principally. Um, it's, it's a solution that women reach for, for the most part, have already got children. So according to the most recent data, 59% of women choosing to undergo an abortion already have a child. So these are, not, these are people who are making a decision to protect their existing family from the stresses of another child by uh, using this last resort measure. The fundamental problem here is huge in its scale, right? And, and it's, it's hard not to imagine that restricting access to abortion would have a huge impact because about half of all pregnancies in the United States are unintended at any one time and half of the unintended pregnancies are currently terminated. So we're talking about huge numbers, 1.2 to 1.3 million uh, terminations a year. And those are overwhelmingly by poorer women. So almost half are actually below the poverty line and 60 to 70% of women taking advantage of this method are in low income categories, if not actually below the poverty line. And so this is indeed a very, very large intervention in the socioeconomic opportunities for women in America, especially women of color and especially women in stressed financial circumstances. So um, let's shift now then to the macro economics of, of abortion access. I, I sent you this essay that I came across. It was published by a conservative think tank, uh, I think two decades ago at this point. The think tank is the Ethics and Public Policy Center. The name of this essay was the Socioeconomic Costs of Roe vs. Wade. It was making the case that, quote here, is that legal abortion, says this author, is perhaps the single largest American economic event of the past century, more significant than the Great Depression or the Second World War. Again, this came from a conservative perspective. Could you just briefly sketch the argument for us and what you've made of it? Yeah, it's a, it's a kind of back of the envelope calculation, basically. It's a bit cranky, to be honest, but nevertheless, one can just run the, run the numbers. And basically what they argue is that abortions, because they have been taken up on a very large scale, have prevented a lot of births. And those babies would in turn have had grown up, half of them would have grown up to be mothers. Uh, so all in all, America's population would have been substantially bigger to the tune of several tens of millions of people. And then it goes on to argue, um, without really elaborating it, that more population is better because it grows demand, it grows the market, it provides labor supply. And it then even goes on to argue that, you know, the, it provides a, you know, future crops of entrepreneurs and the lack of population pressure could be responsible for the slowing of the innovative impulse in the American society. So you can see the story, right? It's a story about how bigger is better and more is better and more growth is better. But there's nothing wrong with that argument in principle, of course. Except you've got to ask yourself whether the maths in this case add up, right? That, I mean, are we really certain that mothers who were uh, obliged to have the children from the first pregnancy or second pregnancy where they otherwise had to have an abortion would have gone on subsequently to have the same number of children? 
is it not obvious that women who are denied abortions of a legal kind will go and find ways of accessing illegal abortions, which will be carried out in much more deleterious circumstances? And that, of course, is the historical experience in the United States and every other country on earth, um, because women in particular situations want to end pregnancies, and they will find ways of doing so, and a market will emerge for them to do it. And then finally, of course, the other thing it doesn't factor in is that if abortion is not available, absolutely not available, or it's available under very difficult circumstances, people will presumably pay more attention to contraception. And so the sort of idea that, you know, you can simply add up the number of abortions to the number of actual births that happens and arrive at a reliable prediction of where America's population would be, I think, is is very naive. Uh, added to which, of course, that the population in question given what we know about the women who are forced to take advantage of abortion services, will be disproportionately from poorer parts of the population. The kids themselves will be quite explicitly not wanted by their parents at that moment. And these are the least propitious circumstances for young people to flourish. So the idea that this is a resource of you know huge unexploited human capital seems sociologically naive. And if you are basically in the basis of trying to, ra- you know, in the business of trying to raise the American population, there's an incredibly easy option to do this. Um, that consists in the tens of millions of people who would love to come to the United States of their own free will and could easily be added to the population and the labor force by a more liberal immigration policy. So it just seems like a very bad way of making the argument for a larger population, which may have merit or not, um, but hitching it to the argument over what is essentially an issue of women's choice and and family's choice about how they manage their fertility seems to me to be, um, well, it's just a kind of, unconvincing uh, efforts to to bolster the argument against abortion in essentially sort of national economic terms. Yeah, that degree to which the argument was sociologically impoverished was was sort of really clear to me. And it sort of astounded me that I don't know whether economists, macroeconomists in general, just sort of use such broad um, rules of thumb that more people is better. Um, no, they don't. No, 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 no. They really don't. I mean, there is a, <laughs> I mean, there's a there's a school of growth orientated population of demography that has made that argument over time, um, but it's. Um, I think it's. I think it's a. Uh, it's just, it's not it's not a very substantial or serious piece of work. Um, mm. um, so no, we shouldn't. Uh, take it too seriously. It seems to me it would be indisputable that reducing access to abortion would lead to a greater number of, of needy children. I mean, you know, that raises all sorts of other questions for me. I mean, in countries where abortion is illegal, are there bigger welfare states to compensate for that? Or do other types of philanthropy and business tend to compensate instead? Do orphanages tend to be bigger industries in countries where, where there's no abortion? Uh, unfortunately, we actually have ways of answering that question. Uh, and the most dramatic is the moment in the late 1960s when the really odious communist dictatorship of uh, Nicolae Ceausescu in, in Romania banned abortion and contraception outright. Um, and so we have a population which previously had access to at least some limited contraception and abortion services suddenly finding themselves cut off. And the consequence was a rise in the birth rate and then a surge, a notorious surge in the institutionalization of children whose parents couldn't or didn't want to look after them. And by, you know, it was one of the great shames of the communist regime in, in Romania that was exposed at the, when, the, when it collapsed in the, in the late 80s and early 90s. Um, the, these institutionalized children were, were discovered, uh, brutalized, uh, malnourished in many cases, abused. 
in general, if we look around the world, if we look at the availability of abortion, um, you know, the world divides. And, and that's part of the problem in, in, you know, locating the specific causal effect. In the, in the Romanian case, we can see because there was a shock decision out of the blue to ban. The problem in the wider world is that a conservative attitude towards abortion, which is dominant in Latin America and Africa, goes hand in hand with relatively low income. Um, and you could see the things as being causally correlated in that one of the predictors for economic growth is female empowerment and uh, abortion is obviously the ways or one of the ways of empowering women to make choices about their lives. And so what we're dealing here with here is a kind of circular causation where societies which are poor also have restrictive abortion regulations and they do also have uh, high, large populations of institutionalized children. And this is particularly pronounced in Latin America. I mean, the numbers for Latin America are, are staggering. We think as many, perhaps, as 4 million Latin American women every year un undertake uh, clandestine and unsafe abortions, 4 million um, across the continent. Around a million of those end up having to seek medical treatment as a result of the, of the botched operations. So this is showing up in the Latin American health systems everywhere across, across the, the continent. And, and, and it, it's a direct effect of this effort to repress people's freedom of choice. And on top of that, yes, Latin America is one of the places where children are still institutionalized on a large scale in, in orphanages, so-called orphanages, because the children, of course, still have parents. But this is true of so-called orphanage populations around the world, 80% plus are, are thought actually to have parents who simply, for whatever reason, aren't able or not willing to to support them. Whereas in the rich world, again, a sort of fundamental distinction um, across the rich world, where abortion is more liberalized, we also have an institutional push really since the 60s to abolish orphanages as a mode of providing care for children because the, their track record is so appalling. And it's quite obvious that foster care, as much as foster care struggles as well, it, it's infinitely better, or perhaps not infinitely, but we can measure its effect. It's hugely better in quantitative terms than institutionalized care is. Yeah, I mean, it, it does. It sounds almost paradoxical, this sort of, that the effect of this is a sort of separation between child bearing and child rearing. I mean, there, it seems like this, this, this policy sometimes presented as a pro-parenthood thing, but it can also sort of lead to less parenting in that way. Well, this kind of bears, I guess, on my last question, which is, uh, you know, admittedly a bit philosophical, but sort of bears on some of these economic questions. And I guess it's basically, do you think that the U.S. pro-life movement is sort of informed in an unacknowledged way, maybe, by by political and economic liberalism? I mean, th th this, this emphasis on the unborn child as an individual bearer of, of rights, of inviolable rights. I mean, to me, it just seems a little strange that there's hardly any emphasis in this pro-life discourse on the family as a, a sort of sovereign unit. Maybe this would be a kind of more Christian democratic European uh, approach to these questions. But but again, the family as a bearer of rights of its own would seem to me a conservative position. You know, the family would be something equipped to make weighty decisions of this kind, maybe potentially tragic decisions of this kind. I don't know, just overall, is there something strange about the individualism uh, of U.S. Christianity and, and its approach to sort of political and, and economic questions of this kind? So a, a very powerful strand of human rights thought uh, did indeed come out of the social Catholic tradition of the late 19th century and the interwar period. And, and that Catholic theologically infused rights discourse was a powerful contributor then to 
the pro-life and anti-war movement of the late 60s and early 70s. And it's when the Democrats swing behind the pro-choice position that those people become homeless, essentially, politically, and drift into the ranks of the conservative um, pro-life movement, um, which they then infuse to a degree with their individualism. But the pro-life movement of a conservative stripe has an individualist bent of a rather different variety. But that, that relationship is there. In general, I think one would have to say that the really striking thing about American politics on this issue is that both sides are radically individualistic, right? So the pro-choice and the pro-life movement in that sense have a common origin in an understanding of individual rights. And the question is battered out and argued out as the rights of one against the rights of the other, right? That's, as it were, the, the rights of the, the, the fetus in so, you know, insofar as one can even speak of that and the rights of, 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 of the woman, the pregnant woman. And what is missing, and I would entirely agree with you on this, and for a European, um, it is, I mean, even one that comes from the UK, which is by no means the most familiarly orientated um, European society, but by comparison with Europe, the absence of a genuine family policy discourse is astonishing. I mean, the fact that there are essentially no maternal rights guaranteed under American law, um, very few paternity rights with regard to outside the private contracts, you can agree with generous employers if you have one, the astonishing lack of national support for childcare is really hugely distinctive and shapes, I think, the politics of this entire field in the United States. It raises the stakes dramatically because the implications for Women in fragile financial circumstances of having children are so dramatic because it's virtually impossible to secure childcare at rates which you can afford if you're working, you know, the $15 minimum wage, which you're lucky to get in some states of the union, right? You, it's very difficult to support yourself on a low income with a family um, in the United States. Uh, and that that reflects a, a huge gap, a huge absence in the repertoire of American politics. It was something that the Biden administration's family's plan was supposed to address in a comprehensive way and to place the family at the center of the agenda. And that's surely for both sides really where the conversation ought to be. I mean, I, I, it seems to me that pro-life politics of good faith should be held to that standard. I mean, what is their vision of the good life for American families and American mothers if they want to hold fast to this restrictive position. The very least, I mean, as objectionable as I find their stance, the very least they owe America an, an answer and America's mothers an answer to that question. Yeah, I guess that's a uh, type of American exceptionalism that, uh, that, that neither side may, may, may want to uh, openly embrace. But, but yeah, it does seem like something both sides have in common, uh, this, this streak of individualism. Uh, yeah, well, we do need to, to leave it there, but we will be back with uh, another data point. Hi, and welcome back. The number here. Well, actually, it's a, it's a range of numbers, 1970 to 1979, the decade of the 1970s as a whole. That decade is the subject of one analogy after another these days with our current economic situation, you know, high inflation, inflation high energy, energy prices. Gas shortages, corruption in the halls of government. Wait a minute, did you think I was talking about today? Oh, no. I meant the 1970s, though the confusion is understandable. 
it's not the feeling that people are just unhappy with the economy and the feeling that something has to change. Adam has a piece that's about to come out in foreign policy that takes up this analogy and actually ends up taking it apart in some interesting ways. So yeah, I thought we would take a stab at walking through the argument, but of course, people should also read the article, which they can find at Foreign Policy's website. Yeah, so Adam, first, I suppose we could start with the object of deconstruction here. I mean, what exactly is the folk memory of the 1970s that people are drawing on? I mean, what is the scenario being conjured up with this comparison with today? Well, I think probably in the United States, it's above all the the memory of gas lines, you know, queues for petrol in our following the OPEC boycott of 1973. Uh, and then again in the late 70s after the Iranian revolution and the crisis in the American energy markets for the second time. Um, going a little deeper, people will remember inflation in the teens, uh, prices rising, um, and if you look around the world, um, you see a slowdown in growth compared to the previous decades. Many parts of the West, the invasion of Japanese cars, uh, the first sense, if you like, that the world economy no longer simply belonged to the Western countries. Uh, in many parts of the world, uh, the 70s saw the last big period of industrial relations strife, of major strikes. Uh, in Britain, for instance, there's the famous winter of discontent in 1978-79. Uh, in Italy and Germany, these are the years of the years of lead, so-called, right? The years of left-wing terrorism, uh, militant challenge to the authority of the state. Um, and then the United States, capping it all, you have Jimmy Carter's um, speech, the so-called Malaise speech, that that summed up in the president's own words, if you like, the sense of unease suffusing American society and the need for radical change. And I think that is also part of the popular myth of the 70s, is that they were the stepping stone to something else. And that something else was the market revolution. It was Reagan's morning in America. It was Thatcherism in Britain, neoliberalism worldwide from the 1980s onwards. So in, in all of these ways, the 70s are a kind of you know, story of dark and light um, of, of of crisis. It's quite a kind of gothic, I think, hmm. memory uh, hmm. that we have of the seventies. So, I mean, I'm guessing that memory is not is not the most accurate rendering of the period. I mean, as memory, you know, so often isn't even in our personal lives. So, I mean, what would be a more accurate account? I mean, what was really happening in the 1970s instead? I mean, were the were the seventies as bad as we're being told to remember? Well, I mean, from an economic point of view, the single most important thing that happened uh, between 1971 and 1973 was the abandonment of the um, gold standard. That's the first moment in in human history in which all of the major currencies of the world are separated from a metallic anchor. Up to that point, all essentially for long periods of time anyway, all known currencies were tied in one way or another to some either gold or silver or something similar. And from Nixon's announcement that the dollar was no longer going to be pegged to gold in August 1971 through to the final collapse of the global currency system with Bretton Woods in 73, we see this unfettering. And I think that has an awful lot to do with the sense of unease. But it also frees the 70s for a period of experimentation, um, which ends you know, in crisis and and ultimately supersession in the, the neoliberalism that followed in the 1980s. But I think it's probably better to think of this period as one of experimentation rather than simply of malaise or, or crisis. 
if you look at the GDP numbers, um, the growth numbers really aren't that bad, um, certainly by the standards of, of today. There's one bona fide recession in 73, 74 following the oil crisis. Um, but but compared to the period from the 1980s onwards, they're quite high. The crucial point, I think, however, is that the growth rates of the 70s were very disappointing by the standards of the preceding period. So we, in a sense, inherit the disappointment of contemporaries for whom the 70s came as a really nasty period of deceleration, right? The post-war growth boom, especially in Europe, was over. A new structure of the world economy was beginning. This unleashes, if you like, an adjustment shock. Um, Europe and the US began collectively, both of them, to move away from the model of industrialism that had never entirely dominated their economies. But there's a real sense, I think, that the 70s mark a shifting of gears, that the familiar models of mass production, symbolized above all perhaps by the motor car, the Fordist model of production, was beginning to come unstuck in this period. And that, I think, is it's these two elements of genuine uncertainty. On the one hand, the destabilization of the monetary system, and on the other hand, the shifts in the literal, the physical mode of production that one has to take very seriously and that mark the 70s as a, as a moment of transition in an important sense. This raises a sort of historiographical question for me. I mean, a lot of what we're talking about is is about memory of this period and how we look back on it. But I wonder what's happened to kind of the memory of the period afterwards. I mean, what about the period of the hardships of the post-1970s period? In some ways, we've now sort of the folk memory of the 80s is of this kind of correction. But whenever I read contemporaneous accounts of like the Reagan administration, for example, I'm, I'm surprised by just how controversial he was. And not just like in ideological terms, but but in terms of just like very practical policies and outcomes, by just how much discontent there was uh, about just suffering that seemed to result from some of the policies he was imposing to, you know, correct for, for the 1970s in the ways we're, we're talking about. So how did that happen? Why don't we remember the 80s differently than we do? Well, I think the crucial thing is, is the Volcker shock of 1979, which is the decision by the Jimmy Carter appointed Paul Volcker as head of the American Central Bank to raise interest rates sky high in 79 through 1980 into 81. And that crushes uh, inflation by crushing the economy. And um, Reagan was regularly at odds with Volcker. Volcker wasn't renewed um, in, in office. He was succeeded by Greenspan. Um, no president likes say, a recession after all. And there was a, a rash of strikes in the US in, in 1981, most famously the air traffic controllers dispute, which the Reagan administration broke. And Paul Volcker applauded this as, as it were, the most important contribution the Reagan administration made to dealing with inflation because it broke the possibility of a wage price spiral with trade unions pushing back. Um, but yes, this struggle over the future um, that subsequently will appear inevitable um, was going on all over the world. Um, Helmut Schmidt, as Chancellor for the Social Democrats, was at odds with the Bundesbank in this period. Mitterrand was struggling to make his socialist experiment work. And the most titanic battle of all comes, of course, in the UK with the giant miners' strike between 1984 and 1985. You can watch a film like Billy Elliot or something like that to get an idea of what it was like. But it, it involved 
hundreds of thousands of miners on strike across the country, large parts of Britain um, cordoned off by the police to prevent the striking pickets moving around the country to stop power plants and other other coal mines. 11,000 miners were arrested, six people were killed. Um, it was a period of extraordinarily intense class and political conflict that shook the entire country. Um, it's worth saying, however, I think that one shouldn't view the disruption and pain, as you say, quite rightly, of the period simply in terms of politics. Um, because what's also going on here is a much broader structural change, which we know by the moniker of deindustrialization in the West, which is really much better thought of as a sort of new international division of labor. Because globally, um, of course, more and more industrial production gets done. There's more steel being produced, being more cars, more buildings, more cement, everything. Like So industry, we're actually building up to the great breakout of the Chinese economy in the late 20th century. But it's the, Asia, the East Asian uh, miracle is really getting going in this period. And it shakes very profoundly the industrial societies and the fabric of industrial society in Europe and the United States. In the United States, it doesn't lead to an immediate loss of manufacturing jobs on a huge scale. It's often misunderstood, but the importance of manufacturing and industry dramatically declines in the U.S. economy. So um, in the late 1960s, almost a quarter of uh, jobs in, in the American economy were in manufacturing, so 27%. And by the time of the 2008 recession, it's down to 10%. It's only really in the latter stages that the workforce really shrinks but uh, manufacturing and industry are losing their centrality to the economy in this period as that kind of production shifts to, to the East. So I guess finally, I wonder if a more neutral way to describe the discontent of the 1970s, and by analogy, I guess, with today's economic situation as well, would simply just be under the heading of disorder. By that, I mean, I guess, a sense that one set of ideas or rules about how the world works isn't working anymore, in, at least not in familiar fashion, but, uh, you know, a new set of rules aren't yet in place. And I don't know, this doesn't presuppose then a kind of new, what new form of equilibrium would then be found, you know, you know as we're, we're talking about the 1970s, as you pointed out, it could have been resolved in a completely different way politically just like we don't know what kind of equilibrium we'll find today. But if we associate, you know, these eras, the 70s and today with kind of discontent, maybe it's just a lack of certainty that's at the heart of this. I mean, a lack of certainty about what's going to happen or, or what will determine what happens. I mean, is that sort of plausible that maybe people just prefer some sense of certainty, even at the expense of well-being? Is that a kind of like economic theme in, in history? I think what's definitely true um, is that this is a period of experimentation. I like that more active form than disorder. Um, but it goes to your point that, in a sense, the parameters are being shifted and, and people are rethinking. I mean, they're, they're getting, on the whole, on average, much of society anyway, certainly the top end of society in the United States, uh, are progressively getting better off and, uh, throughout this period. It's not true for the blue-collar working class in general, especially for male workers whose incomes really begin to stagnate from the mid-70s. But large parts of society are doing well out of this shift. But it definitely involves experimentation, experimentation in terms of the type of economic policy, the structure of the economy, um, but also much more generally, right? This is the period of 
where feminism really begins to mainstream, where the civil rights revolution has to be digested in American society. And that's a long and protracted, and as we know, in both cases, an incomplete process. Uh, the 70s are also a period of think of of concern for, for status quo oriented, oriented people in the West because it's a period of geopolitical contestation. Right? OPEC is not just an oil price hike. It's an assertion by a group of Arab states that independence and sovereignty means their ability to set the price of their major commodity. And that's a shock to the former colonial powers. I mean, the entire energy system was previously governed within a post-imperial regime. Um, it's the 70s of the last period of genuine global revolutionary struggle, the last, you know, the expulsion of Portugal from Africa, for instance, um, and a series of struggles around South Africa and the, the frontline states against the apartheid regime, which are tied up with the with Cold War. It's the last terrible phase of the struggle in Southeast Asia, in Vietnam, Cambodia, Laos, um, uh, at the end, of, in the, the end of that great battle. Um, and in all of those respects, um, you know, you really see uh, a struggle for global power, which which is um, very dramatic. And I think that very much contributes to the sense that the 70s were a period, in your words, and maybe looking back on what I've just described, disorder isn't a bad way of describing how it must have felt. You can see the radicalism at the moment in the decision by people like Kissinger to say, you know what, to get a grip on this, we're going to have to do a side deal with the Chinese. Um, and for all of those reasons, you can also see why people are drawn to the analogy, right? That today as well, there is a sense that we're adrift in terms of economic policy today as well. There's a sense in which the global parameters of power are being struggled over and fought over. And that Kissinger deal that with America did with China is, of course, now radically coming undone um, in the new struggle and confrontation between the US and China. The big difference between, I think, that really quite fundamentally separates us in our current moment from then and you see this in the nitty-gritty of the inflation story, is the absence now of the kind of class conflict, capital versus labor, trade, big trade union struggles over wages and prices that were typical, the norm. Everyone assumed that this was just the way in which capitalist democracy was organized in the 60s and 70s, and they're near complete absent today. And you can you can literally read that off the numbers because you know as as rapid as the inflation is right now, and as much as it in that sense reminds one of the seventies, what we're not seeing is a wage price spiral. What we're not seeing is ordinary Americans or Europeans being able to get ahead of the inflation. In the U.S., they may just about be level pegging, but uh, even in the U.S., they've real incomes, real wages have substantially fallen from their peaks um, uh, in the middle of the of the COVID crisis, which was a rather freakish period for for incomes in a peculiar way. Um, but we've seen um, incomes come off um, their peaks uh, as inflation has bitten. And that marks our, our period today is really in a quite fundamental way different from um, the 1970s. Yeah, it does seem remarkable to me how problems end up sort of getting defined retrospectively by the solutions that, that end up mm sort of oh, getting nice it. put in place. But I actually like your more hopeful framing about how this is a process of, of experimentation. So the outcomes here are, are open, and maybe that is the inspiration we should be taking from the 70s for right now. Uh, whatever solutions end up getting put in place, you know, now's the time to be struggling over that. So uh, yeah, we'll all look out for your piece in FP, but in the meantime, we'll leave it here for now. 
Okay, that's it for another episode of Ones and Twos. Thanks as always to my co-host Adam Twos. Listeners, as always, we like hearing your feedback. Please email us at podcasts at foreignpolicy.com or tweet us at ones and twos pod. Remember, that's twos as in Adam's name, T-O-O-Z-E. And of course, uh, remember to follow and review us uh, on your favorite podcast app. Ones and Twos is written and edited by me, Cameron Abadi, along with Adam Twos. It's produced by Laura Rosprow-Tellum and Rob Sachs. Production assistance from Zamone Perez. Our social media manager is Claudia Tatey. The executive editor of FP Podcast is Dan Efron. Thank you very much for listening, and we will see you back in your feed next week. Hi, I'm Annalise Riles, professor of law at Northwestern University. I'm also an anthropologist and the host of a new podcast, Everyday Ambassador, where we give you the small tools that make big change. The idea for this show has been a long time in the making. I actually remember the exact day I started thinking about it. It was March 11th, 2011. I was in Japan conducting research on the financial markets of Tokyo. All of a sudden, I heard a loud rumbling sound and the room started shaking. Everything came crashing off the shelves. I looked out the window and I could see the skyscrapers swaying so much that they looked like they would touch. And then the sirens started going off. A tsunami was on the way. These were the harbingers of one of Japan's worst ever disasters, the meltdown of the Fukushima nuclear power plant. The Japanese government now says two reactors are in partial meltdown and four more are at risk. The meltdown completely turned Japan on its head. I saw hundreds of stunned office workers covered in dust walking down empty train tracks to get from the city to their homes in the suburbs. Electricity was out, internet, cell phones. Supplies flew off the shelves of stores. Geiger counters became an in-demand item, which is never a good thing. Living through a crisis of this magnitude was an inflection point for me. To prevent the next Fukushima or any of the other crises we face today, we'll have to work much more effectively across silos of expertise and national boundaries. And we'll need to harness the wisdom of everyone, from local fishers to nuclear physicists, on how the world really works and what happens when things go awry. Using this approach, I've gone on to spur countless innovations in global policy. And that's what this podcast is all about. Everyday Ambassador peels back the curtains of high-stakes leadership and gives everyone backstage access to the most powerful methods of diplomacy. In each episode, we'll break things down into deceptively simple moves that everyone can make to help build a more peaceful and sustainable world. Like giving a gift. You want to make it tasteful. You want to make it thoughtful. You thought about the other individual. You thought about what their likes and dislikes are. Or creating a fiction. Taking on a fictional scenario and a role outside of the one that you occupy in your day-to-day life allows you to think through what you would like to have done differently. Or just taking the time to have fun. 
trying to see this as more so building long-term relationships that are going to be helpful uh, down the line when negotiations are a bit harder, as all negotiations are. Each week, you'll hear surprising stories which reveal the moves you can make to change the status quo, to find ways to connect and move things forward. So join me and become an everyday ambassador. Coming to you this spring on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. 